This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I am Jolan Ansami, your co-host joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan and the Midwest, we're delighted to welcome to this program a very special guest, Governor Phil Bryant. We begin our program with Governor Bryant, who served as Mississippi's 64th governor from 2012 to 2020. Before becoming the state's chief executive, Bryant was lieutenant governor from 2008 to 2011, state auditor and represented his legislative district in the Mississippi House of Representatives for five years. Governor Bryant completed his bachelor's degree at the University of Southern Mississippi and holds a master's degree in political science from Mississippi College. Before assuming his role as governor, Brian served as adjunct professor of government there. As governor... Phil Bryant led a Mississippi in implementing transformational public educational reforms, promoting economic development, and building a competitive business climate that attracted major employers like Yokohama Tire Corporation, Amazon, and Continental Tire. And under Governor Bryant's administration, over 80,000 jobs were created, along with more than $8 billion in new corporate investment. Indeed, it is our great honor to welcome to our program an American patriot and extraordinary leader, Governor Phil Bryant. Welcome, Governor Bryant. Welcome, Governor Bryant. Thank you so much, Joe Natasha. Thank you, uh, old friends, again, uh, to be able to visit with y'all. I look forward uh, to the day when we can travel again as we did uh, to Israel just a short time ago, it seems a few years ago, well, uh, perhaps in 2019, um, we all have an opportunity to do that type of thing again, and we see what's going on in the region there in Israel, and with all of our friends, as, as I had been to Israel on four different occasions and met with Prime Minister Netanyahu, three of those visits, so uh, it was so good to see y'all there in Tel Aviv, and I know we have exciting plans in Washington, D.C., hopefully they'll There'll be some very exciting announcements very soon about the International Leaders Summit, but I love being a part of it, and I want to thank both of you for what you do for America, Uh, your strong voices, uh, those that are part of the International Leaders Summit and the roundtable and the conversation that we're having today, particularly uh, talking about my good friend and my president, Donald J. Trump. Absolutely, Governor, and we truly appreciate your leadership in Mississippi and in our country as you've worked alongside with President Trump on some of these important initiatives in advancing uh, free, fair, and reciprocal trade. You've led delegations, trade delegations to Israel and to other parts of the world, and really promoting America's first principles. And Governor Bryant, uh, we have seen so many changes taking place since President 
President Donald Trump came into office in 2017. From what we saw and experienced during the days of the Obama-Biden era. And uh, what we have seen through President Donald Trump's presidency is the fact that the embassy uh, was moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And even last week, uh, we saw the Abraham Accord signed at the White House, led by President Trump, with countries Bahrain and the UAE normalizing relations with Israel. This is historic indeed. And what do you see coming out of the recent Abraham Accords that were signed? Governor Bryant, and what do you see as far as the future of the Middle East with greater stability and peace in the region? Well, first, Joe, you're absolutely right. This is a historic agreement we have not seen, uh, perhaps uh, only in the 1970s when we looked at the peace agreement there uh, that President Carter was able to work in. Have we seen anything close to this? But since the 1970s, we have been um, at war are in conflict with the Middle East. Uh, our good friends in Israel have been in that very dangerous and difficult neighborhood uh, of theirs uh, under almost constant attack. And, and so this president, Donald J. Trump, uh, has been able to bring together a Middle East peace. Uh, people began to talk about peace in the Middle East as if it was never going to, as if it was impossible uh, and yet Donald Trump brings together Israel, the UAE, the United Arab uh, Emirates, and, and, and Bahrain, and has them all at the table, smiling, uh, handshakes of friendship, looking uh, as if they were well satisfied with what had just happened. The President of the United States helping them, guide them through that peace agreement, and is truly... Uh, absolutely amazing what he has been able to accomplish in such a short period of time. If you realize for over 40 years, this has been something that has been uh, has been looked at as only a hope. Only could we pray that the good Lord might bring peace to the Middle East. And in fact, I believe he has had a hand in bringing Donald J. Trump uh, and Jared Kushner. I know Jared very well. He and I are close friends. We worked together on the criminal justice reform, the First Step Act, and Jared is a uh, is a man of strong convictions. He is Jewish, so he understands the faith of the people in Israel and those throughout the United States uh, of that faith. And so I believe he put that to work along with uh, President Trump and the team, uh, Secretary Pompeo and others that were a vital part of this, but to reach uh, peace in the Middle East. And so I hope as we look at the Nobel Peace Prize, which the uh, president has been nominated for, that committee will certainly understand that no one, no one, and our, surely in our lifetime, my lifetime, I think since maybe Harry Truman and FDR had actually won the war, but no one's done more for peace in the world than Donald J. Trump, and certainly is well suited to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. But even beyond that, he is isolating Iran. So you see the sanctions that are beginning to work in Iran, which is the real troublemaker in that region. This Iran nuclear deal that the Obama administration has put together has been a disaster. It has boldened uh, Iran. Uh, it has let their leadership there uh, show their true disdain for the United States of America. So they are becoming the country that is isolated. They are the ones that are out of the mainstream, if you will, with a peace process. I think you'll see more 
I would not be surprised to see the president announce that Saudi Arabia was joining the Abraham Accord. Uh, and imagine what that would look like if the kingdom of Saudi Arabia would say, we are now working, we are at peace and working with our, our neighbors in Israel. This is astounding. This is something that the world never believed would happen. It is wonderful to see this president uh, to be able to step forward uh, on the lawn of the White House there at the Portico and say we have peace in the Middle East, finally. Indeed, Governor Bryant. In fact, uh, I recall your visit to Saudi Arabia and to other Gulf states as well in really advancing America's uh, first principles, the importance of trading with these countries and encouraging them in a way, nudging them forward in understanding the importance of trading in the region, uh, normalizing relations with Israel. And I think the people in that region are getting the message that Israel is really uh, not just only a beacon of democracy and the rule of law, but what Israel has done as a startup nation in transforming its uh, economy uh, to be an innovative uh, environment where high tech and healthcare and other um, areas are just blossoming in the desert, uh, that has truly received the attention of the Gulf states in realizing that Israel doesn't have oil, uh, but it's using creativity and innovation uh, that is becoming a great benefit to the entire world. And Joel, the savings that we see, let's let's just say maybe there's someone listening now in Michigan and saying, well, what, what really good does that do us? I, I can tell you, peace in the Middle East stabilizes the world economy. Uh, the tax dollars that we have invested, rightfully so, in supporting Israel's safety and military defense uh, will now be able to uh, be redirected so that we might be able to use that on infrastructure, on education, on health care in the future while there is peace uh, in the Middle East. And we do not have to extend our resources. Uh, and not only there, but you're absolutely right. I had a, a wonderful opportunity of visiting Israel on three occasions, Saudi Arabia, meeting with the Crown Prince, letting him know that America is hopeful uh, of an end to hostility, into hostilities in Middle East to the work with Donald J. Trump. I visited the UAE, talked to their ambassador there. Um, I've been to Turkey uh, and met with their le- administrative uh, leadership there in, in Turkey. I've been to Afghanistan to visit our troops and at briefings from our military leadership there in Afghanistan and reporting back uh, to the president. Little Mississippi has been able to expand trade throughout the world by 249% increase, a 249% increase over the last decade. Uh, and so we, uh, just moments ago, I received an email of, of discussions that we're continuing in the pharmaceutical industry and perhaps in relationship with Saudi Arabia. So when we have a peaceful Middle East, the trade and economic advantages that we will see and that will help that worker in Michigan make more products that we are then exporting uh, to Saudi Arabia, to Turkey, to Israel, to Afghanistan. Uh, when businesses began again there, I, I was in Uzbekistan, and Uzbekistan on the northern border of Afghanistan, visiting with my friends there, where we do business today. Well, the state of Mississippi, the National Guard trains all of the special forces in the Uzbekistan military. Uh, we are peaceful hands reaching out around the world, and no one has done a better job than Donald Trump 
ending these wars that we've been in for 20 years, losing and sacrificing the treasure of America. I, I mean, I can remember my dad was a World War II veteran, and, and there was there were talk of your sons coming home. My dad was coming home after World War II, so the mothers of America and the fathers need to realize that your sons and daughters will no longer be sacrificed in wars in the Middle East. They go back centuries. Because of the work of this president, our sons, our daughters are coming home and hopefully will never be sacrificed again in unending wars in the Middle East. President Trump is truly advancing peace through strength and trade. Governor Bryant, uh, with U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Ben Carson, we recently discussed the benefits of the opportunity zones that were established through the Trump administration's 2017 U.S. Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, offering incentives for long-term capital investments in low-income communities in which investment has been sparse and growth of businesses has been minimal. During Secretary Carson's visit with you in December 2018, you were touring together some of the Opportunity Zones in Mississippi when Secretary Carson described Mississippi as a state with potential. There is so much potential here, he said. Today, there are some hundred designated opportunity zones in Mississippi attracting private investment. Governor Bryan, could you kindly share with us about your experiences with the opportunity zones in Mississippi during your governorship? They are absolutely amazing. The idea uh, of having these private sector investments. So if someone has a capital gain, and they're, let's say, a very successful businesswoman or businessman, and they have a capital gains tax, they may be able now to reinvest that, offset the payment, perhaps not get it totally forgiven, but offset that payment as they're investing on a low-income business uh, in, in cities or in rural areas. You're absolutely right, Natasha. We've got 100. In fact, Mississippi had the first recognized economic development project within an opportunity zone, Vicksburg Lumber Company. Uh, it was a mill that had been closed down. Uh, 125 jobs had been lost in Vicksburg, Mississippi. A company came in, opened it up, revitalized it, took advantage of a private market investment. These are not tax dollars that are coming from the Treasury into an opportunity zone. These are dollars that are coming from an individual or corporation into that opportunity zone for the investment, primarily, primarily for low-income jobs. Now, these jobs are very helpful in Vicksburg, Mississippi. They are well-paying jobs in the timber industry. Now, with housing starts on the rise, the timber industry is doing remarkable. I just talked to one of the owners, as a matter of fact, the other day at Vicksburg Timber, and he said, "We're, we're going to expand. We're going to add more jobs. So as I took Dr. Carson through there and showed him that the forest product industry in Mississippi is being revitalized, it was dead. Under the Obama administration, those mills were closing down. People who had land with forest products, they had poured their lives into. Now we're, well, now we're depressed. Now we're, the, the, their timber was worth near nothing. And so here comes Donald J. Trump 
building again, the great builder that he is, and housing starts begin. The millennials are beginning to buy their first houses, get out of those apartments. And so uh, the demand of wood products and timber and footboard are just uh, uh, rising daily. So uh, those 125 jobs are back in Vicksburg, Mississippi, because of Dr. Carson, Donald J. Trump, and opportunity zones, which have been, uh, I-, I will tell you, panned by liberal politicians. They have no way of helping inner cities. You see what's happening to the inner cities and those low to moderate income areas across America. But what have the liberal Democrats done? Nothing. Nothing. And we've seen deterioration of deterioration of those cities for generations now. It literally has been the last 50 years that great cities uh, that have been deteriorating, and now many of them are under attack by Black Lives Matter and Antiva. Many of them are being burned down, taken over. But the president of the United States says what we need to do in this tax cut ad is not cut taxes for the rich, but put a provision in there creating opportunity zones where those that have made a decent living, where those that are uh, have a capital gains tax might be able to invest that into his neighbor's plan and save those jobs in low to moderate income uh, areas. It's been absolutely amazing. I'm proud to see it moving forward. We're having discussions now uh, with companies, uh, again, a pharmaceutical company that's looking at Jackson, Mississippi, and saying that's an opportunity zone, so maybe we can move our manufacturing plant from China, from China to Jackson, Mississippi. So we we are certainly looking to the advantages that that will take place and hope at some point in the future our friends on the in the Democratic Party will at least admit that this was a good idea, and those jobs that are being saved and created in low to moderate income areas are a very good thing for that population, which they largely depend on to vote Democrat. So I would imagine that they're very worried about saying, you're right, Donald J. Trump is saving your city. But indeed, he is. Yes, you said it so well. Uh, President Trump's pro-growth policies, tax cuts, and deregulation built a stronger U.S. economy, which is also able to recover faster from the COVID lockdowns-induced economic downturn. Uh, President Donald Trump announced V-shaped recovery, and V-shaped recovery is happening with 1.4 million jobs that were added in August, and the unemployment rate fell to 8.4%. When you compare it, this recovery to the last recession, it took us three years then to reach the same level of the economic activity after the recession of 2009 as we are having this year, just three months from the trough of the COVID depression. Governor Bryant, it is hard to imagine, as you mentioned, reversing these economic policies, which are raising the standard of living for all Americans. What would your message be to our fellow Americans for the upcoming elections? I would remind them of this great country uh, and the strength and endurance and power of the American economy. When the president said, you know, NAFTA is is killing this country and our trade opportunities. There were, again, folks on the left and people like Joe Biden who had supported NAFTA that said, oh, no, it's okay. The Mexican-Canadian deal is not working as well as ever thought. All our jobs are moving to China and many of them to Mexico. But they, they would never admit that there could be a better agreement. So in comes Donald J. Trump with the U.S.-Mexican-Canadian trade deal, the USMCA. 
And look what's happening now. I mean, we're getting jobs back from Mexico. We're dealing and working with Mexico now is an equal trading partner. We know that China, China is a problem on the world stage affecting our economy. But what this president has been able to do and what he will do is bring jobs back from China. Now, imagine what's going to happen when you see 100, 200 pharmaceutical industry and medical device manufacturers return to the United States. When you see technology companies bringing their products back from China to the United States and high-paying technical jobs are being added to the economy. You're right. The, uh, the president created more jobs in the first four years prior to COVID than any president in American history. We've seen nothing like it, perhaps again, since the end of the Second World War. Millions, six to seven million jobs, as you said, 1.4 million jobs added just last month in, in some of the worst conditions that we saw, and a shutdown where, where the Democrats are saying close down the economy, keep them closed. And look, Natasha, if you would take out, out of that, New York and Los Angeles, uh, and some of the larger cities that have necessarily kept the, their economy shut and shuttered, those numbers would be much better. Uh, the mainland of America is ready to open up. They're ready for people to go back to work. So as I, I, I would hope that the people across the Midwest are listening now. And there is hope. This president is going to bring America back. His is to build in America, buy in America, for everyone in America to be successful. Those jobs affected more uh, African-Americans, so we had the highest unemployment among African-Americans and African-American women. Literally, there were more African-American women work, working than African-American males, if you believe that. So we need to send them a message and make sure you get that workforce training, make sure you get out of high school, and let's get to work. Uh, and more Hispanic uh, uh, opportunities for good jobs across this nation. So the president was uh, was lifting everyone. We've heard it time and time again, a rising tide lifts all boats, and it was never a better time to use that analogy than with this great president that reached out uh, and is lifting everyone, while at the same time talking to those that would illegally cross our borders, uh, would violate our federal laws, that would oftentimes bring narcotics or traffic in young women or men into this country. He's building that wall. He's keeping his promise. He is going to make certain that our borders are safe and that those that are coming into this nation have something to contribute to this nation, that they become lawful, productive citizens of this nation, that we welcome to our teeming shores. Uh, that, I believe, is what the Statue of Liberty stands for. Those that are coming to these beautiful, bright, teeming shores, this shining city on a hill, legally that are following the laws to do so. We welcome all of them. But the workers of America need to understand that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are about socialism. They're about saying, you're going to do your job, and here's what the government is going to pay you. The government will manage your health care. The government will manage your housing. The government will manage the energy through the new Green Deal, so you'll be paying $5 a gallon for gasoline. According to Joe Biden, he's going to do away with all fracking, so your natural gas taxes will triple necessarily, uh, and the cost of living will be outrageous, and the, uh, and the poor worker will be looking to government to say, how do you save me? While Donald J. Trump was getting 3.9 million Americans off of food stamps, well, you're going to see people who are back at that, back at the American trough 
uh, of Democrats trying to say, I want to keep you alive just long enough uh, to where we can maintain this government health care. Uh, and, and that doesn't mean too long for you. Uh, this president is saying, live the American dream. Have a great job. Enjoy your own home. Enjoy your physician and good health care. Let this be a great America again. Governor Bryant, you have consistently raised legitimate concerns about China. And Natasha Sardorch and I and our leadership members, and we truly appreciate your leadership role as an executive advisory board member on the International Leaders Summit's board. And you clearly articulated concerns about an emboldened China in Jerusalem at the summit. And uh, we recall your comments about Chinese uh, government and its operatives stealing intellectual property from U.S. companies, the unfair trade practices, in essence, stealing Americans' innovation. And then we ended up with COVID-19, China's culpability in the cover-up of this deadly virus, and its criticism of President Donald Trump when he, on January 31st, 2020, suspended flights from China, realizing that this was going to threaten America's citizens as well as our economy. And from your perspective, Governor, is China a friend or foe of America? And what are your concerns about an emboldened China? Well, you're absolutely right. Um, I I have spent a great deal of time about the last decade studying, visiting China, but also visiting Taiwan, meeting with the president there, visiting Hong Kong, uh, as I saw those demonstrators being jailed and imprisoned by the officials that were now uh, and become quickly under the control of the uh, Communist Chinese Party, the People's Republic of China. So they are acting, Joel, as an enemy. Everything they are doing from building islands in the South China Sea to be able to put military bases on so that they could disrupt the peace that exists now with Japan and South Korea, invading, if you will, India, so that India is having alerts on their northern border as China is continuing to put military devices and equipment on the border with India. Not here in the United States, not only are they stealing most of our intellectual property, by that I would just mean from simple If you go to China, as I did, they're going to compromise your iPhone. They're going to compromise the devices that you have there. They're going to download all of the names and addresses that you have on your phone. They're going to come to the United States in the pretense of bringing industry. They will come and say, oh, we have a billion-dollar manufacturing plant. We want to hire 500 employees. And governors will say, oh, wonderful, come. And they will say, oh, this is a private corporation. There are no private corporations in China. The Communist Party manages and runs and dictates to everyone in communist China, even those that are living here. So if you're Chinese and live in the United States and you don't gather information, if you don't cooperate, if you don't, in essence, work as an agent for the communist China, they may say, well, you know, your family is back home here in China. But they may not receive health care if you keep acting in that manner or you don't cooperate with the Chinese government while you're in the United States as a student, as a professor. Uh, just last week, I, I, I joined some friends of mine and uh, our government agencies that are battling this threat, and we spoke to some leaderships 
of universities uh, here in Mississippi and warning them. You will see Chinese visiting professors. You will see Chinese students that are coming here. And the Chinese people are wonderful. We're not saying they are bad, but they will be controlled. They will be manipulated by the communist Chinese government. This is a real threat, not only to our industry, as we see what has been happening with our intellectual property, but look what's happening with the tech companies. Look at how they defend the the Chinese. If anything is ever said, they are defending the Chinese government, the Chinese government that has uh, been involved with the big tech firm and big data since the very beginning, since they could learn how to steal our intellectual properties and then turn it against us. Here in the United States, they've taken our jobs. Thousands of companies have left manufacturing here. In Mississippi, we used to do so much manufacturing in the textile industry, uh, products that, that could be worn and used by American citizens are now being manufactured in China. But even more frightening, the ingredients of most, a large part of our pharmaceutical products come from China. So pharmaceutical manufacturers are making products taken by Americans to to better their health, to protect their lives, are being sent to us by the communist Chinese. And then that money is being taken to build the largest navy, now the largest navy in the world, and the largest manned military in the world. Americans need to wake up. The president has, as he said at the UN yesterday, that uh, the Chinese sent the coronavirus. They knew the coronavirus was here. They could have contained it in China. They allowed flights out around the world, in essence, sending individuals with COVID-19, the coronavirus, around the world to spread this disease. Had the Chinese government said, we know in Wuhan, this, we have detected this virus, we are going to shut down completely any travel outside of China until we have this under control, 200,000 Americans may well be alive today. So whether China can be identified as an enemy is up to them, but they're certainly giving every impression of acting like an enemy of the United States of America. Uh, governor Bryant, uh, as a former law enforcement officer and then governor of Mississippi, you had the first-hand experience and knowledge to spearhead the criminal justice reform for Mississippi, which then became a template for the nation. The two major issues that you tackled were, first, to put fewer people behind bars, and secondly, to increase their chances of success after the convicts were released from prison. Governor Bryant, at the National Governors Association meeting held in February 2019, you mentioned that Mississippi had reduced its prison population by 11% and saved the state some $46 million in incarceration costs since the relevant laws took effect. You had a key role in convincing President Donald Trump to pass the First Step Act to address the country's mass incarceration rate, which is by far higher than that of any other Western democracy. Governor Bryant, what were the specific actions and steps taken by you and the Trump's administration in order to reduce our country's high incarceration rate? Well, the first thing we began to do was work with those those professionals that are affected by crime, uh, law enforcement, both federal and state, local law enforcement. We met with sheriffs. We met with the police chiefs association. We met with correctional officers. We met with prosecutors. And we said, look, 
we are putting more people in jail, more primarily our young men, but young women as well, mothers. We're putting more people in jail in the United States than any other Western uh, nation in the world. And what uh, what good is it getting us? Crime rates will continue to increase. You continue to solve uh, see violent crimes, particularly in our larger cities. So the pre- this president, again, stepped forward and said we need to do something about criminal justice reform. It had been talked about. The Obama administration mentioned it. But Joe Biden, who had passed the 1994 Crimes Act, said that these people needed to be put in jail, that they had to be put in jail. So uh, with Joe Biden's assistance, the American uh, law enforcement community began to jail, rightfully so, because they had laws that said you have to now put people in jail. And many states said, and oh, by the way, you've got to serve 80 percent of your time. 70% 70% of your time, you've got to serve that large portion of it. You can't be uh, released from jail. You can't get probation or parole. And so we had people languishing in prisons for decades, and Donald J. Trump stepped in and said, let's see what we can do to help this. And we work with law enforcement and prosecutors and the criminal justice reformers across this world like we had done in 2014 in Mississippi. In 2014, we said, let's go in and do an assessment of each of those inmates and find out what, who really needs to be there. Is it a violent offender? Did they take someone's life? Is it a rape? Is it a kidnapping? Is it an armed robbery? Those are the people that need to be in prison. And there's other people that I say we're just mad at. You know, if you break into my car and drive it around as a teenager, I'm mad at you. I'm not sure I need to put you in jail for a decade. If you had drugs in your possession in 1992 and you got 10 years in prison for possession of narcotics, I might be mad that you did something like that. But my goodness, do you now still need to be in jail in the 1990s if you got arrested? If you're a mother with three children and and you were arrested because you had the possession of some marijuana, do I need to give you 11, 12, 15 years? So we looked at the disparity in, 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 in sentencing and saying it's just not working. You know, some states were, were saying, oh, you get a ticket. Others were saying you get five years in prison. So Donald J. Trump stepped up and said, let's look at the nonviolent offenders. Let's look and see where we can offer treatment. What about the mental illness that is a, so rampant within our criminal justice systems? Can we put more people there to be able to help that? Can we look at a second chance? Can we do away with a debtor's prison like we did in Mississippi? Can we say, okay, you've got five years to serve, and then when you get out, you've got to pay a $5,000 fine? Well, they can never pay it, so you just stayed in prison forever until maybe your family sold their home and their property and tried to pay your fine. I'm not saying we ought to do away with those completely, but those were the hindrances. And then we said when you get out, you can't get a driver's license. you got to have a place to live, and we're going to make sure you're a convicted felon, so you can't get a driver's license, you can't get a hunting and fishing license, you can't get a professional license. So we were we were making sure that anyone that got out of prison was doomed. Uh, the president called us all to Bedminster that day, and the Democrats and Republicans, and again, Jared Kushner was a large part of this. Van Jones, who is very, very liberal, but Van is a brother and a dear friend of mine. And, and we began to work and, and finally crafted the First Step Act that, as I told the president, I remember standing there with him that night in the meeting after it was late in the evening at Bedminster and saying, Mr. President, you're the only president, the only president that could do this. Uh, because I, I, let's, let's be honest, Barack Obama didn't have the wheel. He didn't have the political 
uh, ability to get this done in the real world. They only wanted to criticize law enforcement. They only want to talk bad about enforcing those laws. They only want to uh, jail a law enforcement officer that has only seconds to make a decision. But how are we dealing with those men and women that have been languishing prisons for decades with no help, no consideration, no one caring for them? I was proud to see the state of Mississippi lead the way, uh, and I'm proud to, of my president who who will continue in criminal justice reform in the second term of Donald J. Trump's presidency. It is truly an honor to have Governor Phil Bryant joining us on America's Roundtable. Governor Phil Bryant served as Mississippi's 64th governor from 2012 to 2020. He truly is a great advisor of the Trump administration, a principal leader advancing principal policies, a great example for legislators and chief executives in states across our great nation. Governor Bryan, thank you so much for taking time and joining us this weekend on America's Roundtable. Thank you, Governor Bryan. Thank you so much, Joel and Tasha. I hope everyone listening will make certain they get out and vote. Every vote counts. Thank y'all so much for what you do for America. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I am Jolan Ansami, your co-host joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. Visit iLeadersSummit.org.